Hello and welcome to The Dirt. This is the podcast that asks you to leaf any plot expectations at the door. I'm Laura, editor of Grow Your Own magazine. And I'm Sophie, Grow Your Own's content writer. On today's episode, we'll be discussing autumn highlights and the team's best harvests of the year. But first, we're chatting to Kevin Hancock, founder of The Gardens Beehive and developer of The Eco Beehive. Hi, Kevin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hello. Thank you for coming and joining us. Lovely to have you. How are you today? You. Oh, no, all good. It's a bit of a misty morning, but it's um, a lovely day otherwise. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. that's brilliant. Now, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? I know you're very into bees. It's the general gist we have, but we need to know more. (laughs) Absolutely. So in a nutshell, my interest is bees in the wild opposed to bees in beehives. Um, And um, the way my um, interest came about was um, as a small child, me and all my siblings and my cousins were all taken down to the farms in the Eastern Cape to work on the farms. and that gave me some really fantastic childhood memories. But one of the jobs that I had was I would help my um, uncle with my grandfather's bees, and he kept bees in a conventional Langstroth box hive, as one would imagine mm-hmm. um, bees to be kept. Um, anyway, so it gave me a bit of insight into bees there. And because it's the Eastern Cape, it's sem- sort of semi-arid. It's like semi-desert. We were stuck inside for about a week. Well, what felt like about a week <laughs> where it was pouring down the rain. So we were all killing each other. And my grand was at her wit's end. And we were never allowed into uh, my grandfather's study. But anyway, in I went. And um, I just needed a bit of reprieve as well. And in there, I found a early Victorian or pre-Victorian book on beekeeping, which is very unusual because at that stage, beekeeping wasn't considered gardening. It was considered more of an engineering thing Mm, because it was boxes and frames and all sorts of things, engineering. Um, So anyway, I found this book on beekeeping. It's a leather-bound book with hand-painted flowers in section, as you can imagine, those old-fashioned sort of scientific sort of books were. Mm. Anyway, inside this book, there was a little section on bee lining. We all know the term, we're going to make a bee line for the pub, but this bee lining is actually the art of pursuing bees or hunting bees or tracking down bees. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, look, I read this section and I thought, wow, well, I'm a man, I'm in Africa, I'm going to go hunting bees. Well, I was about 10 years old. But anyway, off I went hunting bees when the weather <laughs> cheered up a little bit. And basically what's... The way I do it is I put sugar stations around, sugar water around, and then I go back every few days and then bees and other bugs and butterflies and things and moths will be feeding on the sugar water. But the bees, what they'll do is they'll turn up and then they'll fly off in a bee line, in in a straight line basically. And if you then put up another sugar station, another sugar station, you can then eventually work your way back to where the wild bees are. So this is great. So I've been doing this pretty much since I've been 10, I was 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and that's, so my interest in bees, I have kept bees in, in conventional beehives, as one would um, think, but I don't keep bees, That that's not my interest at all. My interest is more studying what makes bees more successful in trees than in beehives. Wow, um, yeah. So that's my actual interest. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a couple of guys turn up to drop off some stuff. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, yes, my interest is um, not so much bees living in, in beehives, but bees living in trees. So you can only study so much of bees in trees, and then you need some sort of um, other thing to keep them in to be able to then study them further. So I've um, taken... The attributes that they like the most and I've then incorporated those um, into a box and this box has evolved over the years. I've had it with bark on, with no bark on, made out of tree stumps, made wow. um, and it's I've, if it's not a if it's not a, a relevant thing like the bark, they, they don't care if there's bark on it or not um, but I've proven that. So I'll test, test, test and this box basically evolved over um, 20 or 30 years. Um, and then about 10 or 15 years ago, I was um, at around about the same time, I just started developing my 
honey box concept. Right. Um, I'll get on to that now. But anyway, I was at um, out of building maintenance company and I was chatting to the, the site manager and um, he was saying, ah, oh, he was thinking of getting into beekeeping. So I said, well, actually, as it turns out, I sort of keep bees, but not bees conventionally. Yeah. So he said, wow. So then I told him all about my contraption. So he said, wow, you've got to tell the world. So I said, uh, it's my own little thing. It's my hobby, and I don't want to exploit it. And I, it's um, predominantly just for bees for pollinating. Yeah. Um, um, and company, and initially that's what I, I did. I marketed my contraption to companies like um, Wilco and Son, Tiptree, the guys that make the jam. Oh, yes. So yeah. if you ever have jam um, from them, you will have had more than likely um, strawberries that are pollinated by bees coming out of my contraption. Oh, wow, oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, anyway, I said, Oh, you've got to tell the world, you've got to tell the world. So, off I went on a mission to then tell the world. So, ever since then, I then created a product that I could then put in a post and send to somebody, and it would just then work reliably. So, when I went to shows, the first couple of shows I went to, people would say, Ah, oh, it's a beehive, great. How do you get honey? So I'd say, you can't get honey. It's just for bees, for having bees. And I was pleasantly surprised how many people were actually um, quite happy with that. Yeah. Because when I had interacted with people before, there's mostly beekeepers, and they would say, ah, oh, that's rubbish. How can, you, how can you keep bees if you're not going to get any honey? <laughs> um, but um, I have found that older beekeepers that then grasp a lot of these concepts and it's like you can almost see the light bulb go on and the penny drop yeah. as they, as I explain certain things to them and then they just sort of understand, ah, oh, okay, now it makes mm. sense. And because there's no heavy lifting involved, loads of older beekeepers then convert from box frames um, onto my system of beekeeping. Wow. That's amazing. Um, amazing. So, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Um, so I... I, I went to a couple of shows and people were saying, ah, oh, well, um, we ideally I want honey. And I was developing the honey box at the same time. Um, so what makes my contraption unique is that it's the only, and this has got a mouthful, it's the only self-regulating honey harvesting system in existence. Um, so what that means is with conventional beekeeping, the queen in spring fills the cavity up with bees and then she leaves with half the bees and then they make a new queen and that's how they then make new colonies. The queen is, that's in there is always trying to leave and this yeah. is the, the, the problem beekeepers have is because they can't have half their workers leave. Mm. So what they do is they cut the queen's wings off and therefore they are beekeepers where I'm a host. So my contraption is more like a bird box because they just turn up and then they stay there and then they leave if they want. Um, so when you have one of these, you'll have that genetic line in there forevermore, but it won't be the same mother. She will leave with half her daughters and they'll make a new mother. Right. Yeah. So, um, but then what beekeepers do is they then put, so the, the bees move up to the warmer part of the hive in winter and then they move down um, to where, closer to where the entrance is in summer to then make babies and in winter they will have then stored honey because they can't hibernate. All other bugs and things either die and leave eggs or they hibernate. Honeybees are wide awake all year round. Even when there's snow on the ground, you'll still see a bee come out for a fly around. Wow, yeah. So um, the question is how do you get – so beekeepers put an empty box on the top. So they change the, the internal volume um, and then bees have to fill that space. They go into a bit of a state of shock and they have to then fill that space, which is great for making honey, but it's not ideal for bees. So the question is, how can you take honey out of something where you don't change the internal volume? Mm, yeah. So quick story. Um, a few years ago, in a small cavity, they will live in there, but after a, after a while, they will then leave. But in a larger cavity... They will then fill that space um, and they will live in there pretty much forever more because they can move the, the wax around. But if there's any little nooks and crannies, what they will do is through the summer, they will then put excess honey into the side boxes. So I had a colony that then died. They'd got their calculations wrong and it was very sad. And I had an endoscope in the tree and I was having a look around. 
And then a friend of mine in Canada said, no, 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 it's not disease. Because I thought, ah, here we go. I've got a disease of some sort. Mm. I said, no, 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 it's quite common in Canada. And he sent me all the research. And the research showed that they won't um, retrieve honey inside their own cavity if it's in one of the little nooks and crannies through winter. In spring they, or through summer, they might use it. But through winter, they won't. Right. And this or evidence of that they starved to death and died because they got their calculations wrong. It is a it is a it is a weird sort of spring. It sort of rained and rained and rained. Because if it rains, the rain washes the nectar away. So my contraption, if you have a look at it, the main box or the tree stump part of it doesn't change volume. But I put boxes on the side, which they can then, if they if they have, and it's very much weather dependent, and it does take them a while to actually find that it's there. Um, so it takes about two or three years before they actually then find that it's there and then they start using it. But then what you do is there's no feeding them sugar water. There's no um, giving them chemicals because they're not stressed. Um, and when you come to harvest the honey, you take all of it because they won't actually use it. And that's super cool. Yeah. There's nothing like it. Yeah. <laughs> Free gifts. Yeah. 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 Um, so you don't get huge volumes of honey out of these things. You'll get about six or ten kgs out of one of these, um, which is about fifteen jars of honey. Wow, that's still a lot um, to me. So that's perfect. Oh <laughs> yeah, for the average family, that that's 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 a that's a lot of honey. Wow. Um, so and it's cool because it's self-regulating. And if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. You just leave it alone. Yeah. So I've got lots of gardeners. Um, and some allotments that have them where they literally just put them in purely for the fact that they've got bees on site. Yeah. Um, farmers yeah. like them because they've got pollinators on site where it's a measurable quantity of pollinators. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of um, farmers buy in bumblebees because then that's a, a measured quantity of pollinators. Yeah. But if they have my hives, they can just weigh them. They put a scale underneath one of the legs and they can actually weigh how much pollinators they've got wow yeah. that's amazing um, yes. yeah so it's um it's cool in all sorts of different um levels yeah. Uh, yeah. i love this idea like, I, I think i'm going to be looking at these products <laughs> yeah. if i'm honest because i think it's brilliant it's such an organic way of encouraging pollinators helping wildlife yeah. and we do need to help yeah. the bees you know yeah absolutely and um bee numbers so if you if you look at the the research bee numbers so this is what my big push is at the moment so yes um uh, my eco beehive is there and it's pretty cool but i'm i'm keen on all any type of beekeeping regardless if it's in framed hives or if it's so you have um you have conventional commercial beekeeping which have the box framed um, fed bees, which is grand. They, it's, it's beekeeping. Then you have your guys at home that like to keep bees in boxes and frames as well, which is also grand. Then you have the more natural sort of beekeeping, which is in Kenyan top bar hives um, or in ware hives or Japanese type hives, which is you can then um, manage them however naturally you want to. But all those systems, you all, all of them require a change in not the Japanese and the ware half so much, but it's still a change in the main brood chamber area. Whereas mine is the only system that doesn't affect the brood chamber area or volume at all. Um, right. Yeah. So, but I, I promote, I, I love all things beekeeping on all levels, but my big push um, is if you look at the research through Europe, you'll see, um, beehive kept bees numbers are up. It's really popular. But if you look right. at the bee network or distribution um, of colonies, those numbers are going down. And because um, you, you must think of a beehive, so if you think of a single bee as a cell in a body, and then you think of a beehive as a superorganism. So they rely on the comb and the space, and um, they, the, they, they do all sorts of really funky things. But the whole colony, it's like an organism on its own. No single part can survive on its own. But that in itself, they can't. So if you've got a, an apiary system, we have 10 hives. It's a high concentration of bees in one spot. But in the wild, you, that's completely artificial. In the wild, you'll have them three or four hundred meters apart. 
and they need that network because as they get predated on or if they have some sort of disease come into the network, as a network, they can then work out how to combat that. At the moment, that network is breaking down. And because that network is breaking down, actual B numbers are going down. Right. And that's So that on, in Europe, they're actually on the red list. Um, they're not, you'd think honeybees, because there's more beekeepers than ever before, ever in history, that they, they should be on the green list, but they're on the red list because of that network breaking down. Yeah. Um, so that's my big push to try and get people, encourage people to yeah. um, it's great. put hives, because um, you only need to have one because they, it's, you never have them all on top of each other. So if they want to put up a log hive or if they want to have conventional beekeeping, absolutely go for it mm. um, just to increase the or reestablish um, that honeybee network um, yeah. throughout England and then through Europe. So that's my big thing. Yeah. So yes, I've got my beehive and it's a great thing. But the big, my big interest is trying to get encourage people to um, take up or look into just having some sort of nest or colony of honeybees in their garden. Yeah. Um, another misnomer that that's out there is um, if you have honeybees, they suppress all other pollinators. Um, right. And what I've found is if you have more than one hive, um, right, if you have an apiary system, because bees are so efficient as pollinators, they then do suppress other pollinators, like right. all your wasps and flies and things. And, and the more you have in one spot, the more they will then suppress other pollinators. Um, and this, and they will also pollinate closer and closer to the hives. So if I'm hunting bees, when I get to about 100 meters to 200 meters from the tree where they are, all of a sudden I can't actually track those bees anymore because they don't want to be found. So theoretically, if you go one hive and you want your bees to pollinate your flowers, your beehive can't be in your garden. It has to be two or three houses down so that they'll fly over to your garden. Right. Because... <laughs> Um, it's a bit counterintuitive. So in my front garden, I've got a beehive. But the bees that are in there, even in spring, when the whole front garden is purple crocus, not a single one of those bees will actually forage on any of the flowers in my front garden because they don't want to be found. Wow, that's so off. interesting. <laughs> they're, so, they're so clever, aren't they? Like yeah. But if you've got an apiary system, they will. And yeah. then what they'll do is they'll actually suppress all the bumblebees and things like that because they're just so efficient. So it's a yes and no answer. Yes, honeybees do suppress other pollinators if they're in an apiary system. Um, well, it sounds like obviously this has been a pretty amazing journey so far, but would you be able to tell us what you would say if you could pick out something that has been your biggest success since you've been doing this? Um, just... The, my, I think the biggest success was my surprise at how well it's been taken up by general everybody. Yeah. Um, I do get a little bit of pushback from some quarters, but on average, um, it is just so, because I, speaking to people um, before, my impression was that people would only take up beekeeping of any sort if there was honey involved. And at least 70% of all the um, beehives or cell are not for honey. They're just purely so that people can have bees in their garden. And that to me is... That is that's so lovely. It's just, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 And I think it also connects people more to their outdoor space, understanding things like how the eco web of like how bees connect to, as you say, with the pollinating things, how they connect yeah. with other pollinators, how yeah. that's all in the wider story of the garden. Absolutely. And they're naughty. They're naughty because they don't <laughs> read the instruction manual. They really don't read the instruction manuals. So uh, I've had a couple now where I make hives for some people with a door on the side. And if you read any of the literature, the literature says that bees will move into a cavity and they will start building comb mm. from the top down and they don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> they just thought we'll about, do this different we'll yeah. do this our way <laughs> they quite often build from the bottom up and also the literature also shows that they will grow the comb horizontally away from the entrance holes 
Uh, no, I'll just do no. that. Thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't read the instruction manual. They have a different rule book to us. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now yeah. imagining these tiny little B-sized instruction manuals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the next, that's the next there's, lots of really, there's lots of really funky things going on as well. Um, so... If you, if you go on a beekeeping course, I'll tell you about the waggle dance and how they, they will indicate where the flowers are and all the rest of it. But there's a lot of other funky things that are on the go as well. Um, so, for instance, there's one of my beehives in the front garden. The queen that's in there in spring, she will then leave because I allow my bees to swarm. So they'll, it'll be like two or three generations later, that queen will then overwinter. That the next spring, as soon as we have one or two warm days, about half a mile away, there's a hedge that flowers. And these bees, without even scouting it, will fly straight there. They just know that it's wow, there and it's flowering. Amazing. So there's some sort of long-term built-in genetic memory or something. So yeah. that's really cool. They're so smart, uh, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and then... Um, everybody's going on about food miles. Now I've got a beehive in the back garden and that beehive has got the highest food miles of um, any honey anywhere in the world. Um, real honey this is. Um, because um, over the road is a church with a graveyard and they fly flowers in from all over the world and these flowers sit there oh, and my be I see. <laughs> Oh. Love these gathered and try and pollinate these these cut flowers. So, uh, oh, I love it! I get some of the highest food mile honey in the world. Yeah, they've they've been to flowers from all over the world. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, then. We're obviously, we've talked about your successes. Unfortunately, we do now have to bring you on to the other side of the coin. Have there been any things that you've tried or anything that you've done in the process that really hasn't worked? What have been your sort of your standout fails? Initially, when I first started, what I used to do is um, I'd put up swarm lure um, boxes. So you make a box and it'll be the right sort of volume and then you bait it. And then you have swarms move in. And the first year that I did it, Archer, um, I used my African knowledge and I just put a box up. And the bees moved in and that winter they died because there wasn't enough insulation. So oh. I pretty much just killed off a colony. Um, but then that's it, just a learning curve. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. These things happen, don't they? And so that's that how you learn. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I worked in Africa. Uh, didn't work, yeah. But I've been all over the world looking at, because um, um, honeybees are pretty much honeybees. So I've spent quite a lot of time in Poland and Czech and around there, and they do beekeeping in a very old-fashioned way, which is really interesting. And I've incorporated some of those ideas into, um, uh, especially the, the Polish. Up in the mountains, um, uh, they make a... Um, vodka from peaches and it's a super high octane and it's the only thing that will dissolve propolis which is the wow. glue that they, the bees glue everything together with. Oh wow! Uh, so, um, and That's then a I've, strong I've one. Been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only place in the world where you can get true organic honey because bees fly over such a large range if you have one person in that range that is using any sort of pesticide or herbicide you cannot class your honey as being organic. Oh, dear. Same thing in Cuba. Cuba, they don't use anywhere, any pesticides or herbicides anywhere in the country. Wow. It's the only place in the world where you can get truly organic honey. Mm -hmm. So I went there and we spent two weeks exploring um, honeybees in Cuba and how they do it there. So that was pretty Amazing. cool. That's really interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, and all those little bits I then filter into my pool of knowledge, which I then test different aspects and then um, that gets then incorporated, if it's a thing, gets incorporated into my, my contraption. Oh, it's so interesting. And it's so interesting hearing how it is in different parts of the world as yeah. well. Yeah. Cuba is really interesting on so many levels. Um, also, because they're so close to Mexico, I was expecting lots of really rich, spicy foods. And their foods are actually really plain, but really tasty because it's all natural. Oh, yeah. Um, and their chickens are like turkeys, man. They just <laughs> <laughs> super sized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh wow um what would you if you had to pick out a tip that you've kind of learned along the way something that's really made the process sort of more effective um and what tip would you give to somebody starting out with one of your eco beehives um not necessarily starting out but i quite often get asked what flowers um are best for honeybees Okay. Um, because people want to help honeybees specifically. So this is our response to that. So honeybees um, can see infrared and they can see blue purple color. So if you see individual flowers, they'll give off a specific signature purple. So you they, so you'll have like white flowers and white flowers are normally for um, moths, but you'll have different colored flowers. Um, but they will be a flower on its own because that big flower will give off a infrared signature and the bees can recognize that signature. If it's something like lavender, where it's just a big bunch of small flowers, it'll be blue because they can recognize the color. So quite often bee-friendly plants that are lots of little flowers, they will be blue because they give off the right color. If it's a big flower, it'll give off a signature. But then... Bees, because they can't hibernate, when they really battle is at the end of winter when they've now starting to run out of honey. So yes, you can plant flowers from seeds, but that helps all pollinators. If you want to help honeybees specifically, it needs to be something that flowers early spring, like um, crocus or mayflower. They, they're early flowering plants, and that's when bees and also bumblebees are really battling. Because bumblebees, as soon as you get a couple of warm days... They come out of hibernation and they need to feed, otherwise they will just um, die. Honeybees have got a bit of store of honey, but it's the bumblebees that also really battle. So yeah. my advice is early spring flowering plants for all your early flying pollinators. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I think none of us need any excuse to get anything in the ground for nice and early, do we? <laughs> that's, so that's, that's right. We're <laughs> eager, eager to go. <laughs> any excuse. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's and then on on my on on the beekeeping side of things, if you've got a um, a high traffic place, so say you want to put one up at work, if you have the hive two meters, three meters up in the air, you won't actually even know that there's a beehive there because they'll be flying up and over your head. So quite often, when you go to national trust sites like walled gardens and things, quite often there's actually bees living in those walls, wow. and people don't even realize that the gardeners know that they're there. <laughs> but all the people that are visiting, all the public that are there, don't even know that they're there um, because they're flying just over your over your head. Amazing. So I've been invited to quite a few um, national trust sites um, just to give advice on um, bees and things wow. living in their walls. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. And um, well, just before we let you get back to your day, um, our final question for you would be if there was one standout lesson that you've learned in the time that you've been doing this, what would you say that would be? Like, what's the most important thing you think that you've discovered? With regards to people? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's um, always the challenge. <laughs> I've, uh, I'm so pleasantly surprised how people are accepting of um, something that is so out of the normal. Yeah. Um, and then um, I think the thing that's created the most success with this contraption is the fact that I've been able to discover um, not only one system of self-regulating, but actually two systems of self-regulating. Um, so if you look at my hives, you've got the choice of either a big honey box or a small honey box because um, I've been able to devise two self-regulating um, yeah. systems, not just the one. Um, and that has revolutionized the acceptance because you've still got that 30% of people that actually want honey, and it's actually fine. It's mm. actually really cool. Yeah. yeah, like you said, they they don't need it, do they? So you're not taking away from them, you're just taking a bonus, really, aren't uh, you? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. That's brilliant. Oh, I yeah. love that. And where can we find these products? Where can the listeners find more information? Uh, if you just Google Gardener's Beehive or Eco Beehive, you'll see it pop up as the first thing on a Google search. Brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Gardener's Beehive or Eco Beehive. Oh, that's great. I know we'll we'll certainly all be jumping on the website yes. now, won't we? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and, and how about your social media channels? Um, if you um, hashtag 
Gardner's Beehive or Facebook Gardner's Beehive um, or Twitter Face. I, I don't. Most of my stuff is on Instagram because it's all right. short little videos, and it's um, it'll suck years of your life away because it's just there's just video after video. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of information, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can see me collecting swarms and putting swarms in hives, and you can see me collecting honey. You can see me putting wow. boxes on and taking boxes off and processing honey and um, disease control and all the conventional beekeeping and all that stuff. Instagram, that's that's where most of my information is. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and YouTube, obviously. There's a little bit on YouTube. <laughs> most of it's on, on Instagram. Oh, lovely. Okay. Well, That's I'm sure yeah. a lot of people will be jumping on there because it's been so interesting. Thank you so much oh, for coming you. on. Yeah. Well, no, thanks for having me. It's really thank you. Yeah, yeah, we'll um we'll let you get back to get back to your bees. But yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for chatting to us today. And thanks, um Kevin. Sophie, shall we hear from our sponsor? Yeah, let's go in here. DC Thompson Shop has a wide range of garden plants, accessories and gifts. Save up to 50% with many collections. For a garden that takes care of itself with effortless, low maintenance plants, the shop has lots of popular bulbs, bedding plants and ground cover perennials too. For real garden enthusiasts, there is a choice of more unusual varieties. However green your fingers, there is something for everyone. Visit dcthompsonshop.co.uk and place your order today. Hi everyone. Hello. Hello. How are we all doing today? Good, good. Not too bad, thank you. Good. Got a cup of tea. So happy. Oh, so cosy. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Especially when there's a little bit of a chill in the air. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of autumn feels um i wanted to share with you a little moment i had earlier this week uh, no it wasn't late last week i tell a complete lie um <laughs> i went out i was having a really grumpy miserable day and i decided to drag myself out on a run because i'm i'm trying to get a little bit fitter and i thought oh, you know, i really can't be bothered i just want to stay in watch television i don't want to be outside and anyway it was after 5pm and the sun was setting and you know sometimes in autumn obviously you've got that lingering little bit of daylight between 5 and 6pm mm. and I was wandering around sort of like the sort of block of like the, the road that sort of circulates around my house and anyway there's a, a tree a massive tree that was like right in front of me and basically the sun was at a, such a particular angle that everywhere around me was dark and grey but this tree was like illuminated oh. and it had oranges and yellows and greens and I couldn't believe what I was seeing it looked like a photoshopped image in front of me but it was real life and Wonderful. my shoddy iPhone camera wasn't going to do it justice I wish I kind of had <laughs> taken a photo of it now but it was just one of those really magical autumn moments yeah that I was not expecting that's you know. so lovely yeah it Gives was that really magical lovely feeling. and yeah. those colors just seemed to soak up that sunlight and radiate out this yeah. natural beauty nothing does it like nature yeah mm. and it's just stuck in my mind ever since so i'd like to know if either of you have any like mo moments or memories that you really relate to autumn mm. i think similar to what you've said about the light mm. i do find there's something about light around this time of year when it's when the sun's out and just really <coughs> low and just kind of sweeping across everything, making mm. everything glow. Definitely that. And also, um, occasionally, uh, my boyfriend and I will go for walks sort of across, around some fields. And with the kind of, just the landscape, with the, the, the sun setting over mm. the landscape, and mm. everything looks golden and just really kind of serene and yeah. nice. And when there's that kind of... I think as well with autumn is that fresh breeze that you get. Mm. Yes. And it just feels almost like delicious do you know yeah. what I mean it's like oh I could drink that breeze like it's so nice plus as well yeah. I think with the light carrying on from that because I knew the sun was setting mm. and it just so happened to illuminate this, this ridiculous tree mm. I thought that's going to be there for like a couple of minutes so I had to just stop and look at it yeah, yeah. and it sounds bad but in the summer you know you quite often have lovely sunny days but yeah. you don't really appreciate it yeah but because it's that lingering moment mm -hmm. it seems so precious yeah. yeah, and noteworthy. Mm, definitely. Absolutely. 
I think again it's for me there's probably not sort of a moment but more like you were saying with the feeling of it Mm. like going for a walk there's um a nice walk near um by some lakes near us and sometimes in autumn just to go there sometimes I'll take my little flask of tea with me sometimes I won't see (laughs) and um I I mean I know we haven't quite had scarf weather yet but I love having like a cozy scarf on and just walking around there and like crunching on all the crunchy leaves and Mm. I was going to say all the beautiful colors and that feeling where you're quite cozy but your face is a bit chilly yeah and it's just Oh, I mean, without wanting to sound cheesy, nature really puts on a show at this time of it year, really doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. I think as well, again, um, you know, I mentioned mornings last week, which is making me sound rather more of a morning person than I actually am. <laughs> um, but those really still moments where you sort of feel a bit like the day is waiting to be started. Mm. And you can see some of that. It's going to be one of those lovely summery, well, I don't mean summery autumn days, sunny autumn days, you know, where it's not too hot, but it's also... Mm nice and bright and crisp yeah, and oh, yeah. I love it crisp well, then, is a good word that's a good yeah. one I do really love it but I did see something online the other day that um made me feel about a thousand because there was <laughs> this thing that um a list of things that if you like it and talk about it they can tell when you were born <laughs> and one of them was love I mean it was an American quiz so it said loving fall and I was like wow I feel absolutely I mean that and a number of other things on the list I thought I felt attacked (laughs) I am someone that has always preferred spring and summer because they have that promise and hope and flourishing life and I've actually suffered with negative more negative emotions and feeling sadness when autumn comes around Mm -hmm. so for me to have that moment of like wow that's really beautiful yeah was just such a because I don't often think that yeah although saying that the big kid in me always loves crunching on leaves yes if they're dry for anyone questioning I obviously mean with my feet not my teeth (laughs) (laughs) just in case you thought Laura likes to eat leaves I would say though that um I think it always feels like a really pivotal moment because I completely get liking spring and summer yeah and the hope of it but I, I think I've probably said on here before that I really love having seasons and I really mm. feel like each season I'm really ready for the next I mean obviously I'm not necessarily including the bit of winter that's January and February in that because they are generally quite dreary months yeah. but mm. I think I really love, as you say, the promise of spring and then all the vibrancy of summer. But then you come into the autumn and there's all this lovely, like, crisp, chilly, coziness. And then you get into winter. And, like, I think the start of winter when there's uh, there's its own bit of winter promise there. I think it's more once you get into the bit of winter (laughs) before spring that feels feels long. um, We're all done now. uh, And I think being outside (laughs) enabling you to appreciate those moments like you did and seeing the change around you. And I think we're so unbelievably fortunate to have that. Yeah. We've been lucky with the amount of like autumn sunshine we've had so far as well in in the east of England, I would say. I've just been astounded because that is really when it shines and you get those like golden fiery colours. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a work of art. It is. Isn't it just? um, Yeah. Yeah. And it put me in a better mood seeing that. Yeah. So just shows I need to get myself outside a little bit more often. (laughs) um that actually kind of links into something that I've seen on the Guardian website about um fallen leaves and autumnal things um so yeah there's there's this feature in the Guardian that um says that a municipality in the Netherlands has declared fallen autumn leaves to be worth their weight in gold ecologically speaking right and about how um people are basically being encouraged to allow autumn leaves in parks and gardens and things to decompose rather than picking them up um, because it's great for soil health and boosts insect life and everything like that. So I know I was saying last week about picking up my fig leaves 
Maybe I should have been leaving. My, well, <laughs> actually, the sheer volume of fig leaves, it just wouldn't be practical. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be able to access my garden. But um, <laughs> I think that's really interesting as well, allowing, because um, I think we do have a tendency to want to um, control, not control, that's the wrong word, but to have an input in stuff like, oh, those leaves look a bit messy, let's clear mm. them up, or they might be slippery, so let's pick yeah. them up or whatever. But the fact that actually just letting nature do its thing, and if yeah. you leave the leaves, that it's going to be really great for the soil and really yeah. great for insects and everything. And it kind of makes you think, I wonder what everything would look like if we all just left alone mm. for a bit, if yeah. we thought we don't want to get our little mitts into everything. And also, like, you shouldn't be treating your garden like your living room. You know, exactly. you don't need to keep tidying and tidying and tidying and keeping on top of it and What's hoovering up those outside? leaves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like I said, they are part of your garden. Like, we all, yeah, if you, if you own a garden, if you're lucky enough to own a garden, it's yours to do as you wish. Mm. But it's an outdoor space. And mm. we've had so many guests talking about how, like, respecting the space yeah. is actually quite a crucial part Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been a strong message throughout, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And a lot we, we have this misconception that, oh, like a, a tidy garden is the best garden, but it's kind of been proven in many ways that actually leaving it to be a bit untidy is better for the ecosystem and local wildlife and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um it says here that um one of the council spokespeople has said they're trying to change the ideas about how public spaces should look. The city wants to retire leaf blowers in parks and create a warm, wet winter leaf layer for insect life, even if it looks messier. Mm. Um, and then talks about the environmental benefits of them. Um, and it also says here, which I think is kind of lovely, the council is putting out 200 leaf baskets around the city and is encouraging oh. people tidying up fallen leaves around the street to deposit them to be di- um, diced, mulched and used as compost for city plants next spring. Aww. Aww. Also, as well, imagine being like a little kid and like saying to someone like, oh, your job is to like spread leaves everywhere and like throwing leaves all over yes. the lawn. Yeah, That'd be so true. fun. As a child, yeah. I'd do that now. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like the ultimate form of making a mess and being praised for it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it really does go to show like nature knows what it's doing and it's all been around for a long while before we turned up yeah. and will probably be around for a long while after we aren't. And um I think there's something really lovely about the natural way that things that things happen. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Um now, I know we are just in autumn, you know, we're not even in winter quite yet, um, although it's fast approaching when you actually think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I've been thinking already about what I want to grow next year. Mm-hmm. I've been having a little think yes. um, and I've been thinking about what went well this year and what didn't go so well this year. Um, now, I was just wondering what, what what harvests did you particularly enjoy this year and what would you kind of consider repeating next year well in terms of this year I haven't grown that much so I feel like I need to sort of look back on a few different years because yeah. <laughs> my garden's a little bit of a mess <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah obviously my razzmatazz they're, they're always the chilies mm. they're, they're always very reliable and I go back to them for a reason and I don't think there's anything wrong with having tried and tested varieties um, particularly if like me you don't have a lot of space and opportunity to grow yeah, a lot absolutely. um but you know other than that i would say i mean the nosferatu chili laura that you gave me mm. was an absolute highlight and oh. glorious i think we only chance we get to praise that variety we do <laughs> um, but for good reason um and then obviously with like the tomatoes as well um oh i think it was corda blue there was a uh, beefsteak variety yeah. that i really enjoyed and it was just the drama of how massive they yeah. became i'm not much like massively productive plant plants and but the ones that i did get were glorious and yeah. felt really mediterranean it was delightful uh-huh. oh that sounds <laughs> yeah. nice yeah um i think for me the big successes this year have been tomatoes um to be absolutely frank with you not a lot else it's been <laughs> such a strange season i yeah. had some beans obviously some courgettes and various herbs and lettuce leaves and things but I think the ones the only things that 
absolutely soldiered on through whatever happened in this weird weather was the tomatoes um tend to come back to certain ones every year like I know sun gold just yes they get grown every year then the others tend to be on a bit of a rotation system so there's um some cherries some plums some beef steaks that sort of thing um and this year there were some um called orange orange queen I believe they were called um and they were quite big orange tomatoes obviously (laughs) and they were absolutely delicious like I sometimes think that um don't get me wrong I love a good beefsteak but I sometimes think with some of the big tomatoes they can get a bit watery and insipid maybe yeah. I mean that's probably my fault rather than the actual variety's fault but these ones um and Emily I've grown the ones you were talking about before and they are amazing mm. as well but these orange queens just the flavor was unbelievable oh, wow. and as you were saying it, it didn't get loads and loads on the plant um like, I can't remember what the little purple ones I grew this year were called. Um, maybe Black Opal. Wow. That they rings were a bell. absolutely prolific. I mean, pumping out tomatoes until way past everything else was out <laughs> of the ground. Like, really? they were the real overachievers. But I think it was the Orange Queen that really, um, really sort of stood out. But then I do like trying new varieties of tomatoes. So I don't know what I will be loyal to. But I think the thing that I am going to do best this year and, um, Obviously, I haven't given Figgy loads of airtime recently, but uh, obviously, why break the habit of a lifetime? Let's talk about it. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm pruning earlier this year. I'm definitely pruning earlier because I don't know if it was the weird weather, but um, it put on. It had a really hard prune last winter, and it put on an enormous amount of leaf growth again. Mm. Like it's it's ridiculously huge, um, but. The figs, unfortunately, started falling off at the end of the season before they were quite ready. So now I think if we're going to have weird weather again, maybe I just push everything forwards a little bit and then hope to... Yeah. Actually, because, I mean, there were loads. Mm, But, um, yeah, still uh, the endless tale of me and Figgy. (laughs) How about you? What were your big success stories? And what Mm. will you definitely do again? Well tomatoes were very very successful um grew sun golds and tumbling toms as well love and it's the first time i've grown either of those so i was very impressed with the sweetness of the sun golds um so that was really nice um and i think i've spoken about this before but the peas were amazing yeah her screen shaft all the way (laughs) and and special mention to meteor peas so that they were both really really good and i think i'll be growing like half a bed of peas next year because they were just yeah. I couldn't, we couldn't get enough of those and I you think can't the, even get them into the kitchen they're just so no. delicious just eating them right there on the absolutely yeah. they, they just were eaten basically in the garden <laughs> and that's it yeah they have such a different flavor to what you can ever get in the supermarket and I think although I to be fair I think I grew a dwarf variety once ah. so because I could only grow in pots in my mum's windowsill once <laughs> um and they did like I said they weren't very prolific but the peas that I did get from them Ooh. were so lovely. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, they stand out, don't they? It's like a real homegrown flavour. I think they do. Yeah. They really do. And and there's something so Moorish about them as well. Like you can't just have one pod; you have to have many <laughs> pods. And the, the hardest thing was at the beginning, and um, we'd have like what there'd be like one or two pods that were ready, and I'd go, right, "There's a pea for you. There's a pea for you." And <laughs> my mum, sister, and I would all have a pea each. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yummy! Where are the others? Are oh, they not ready yet? <laughs> Um, but also um, I grew the lettuce that I grew was a a big hit with my mum especially like Mm. she was picking it every morning for her sandwich to take to work and along with the tomato so that was really successful Um, and also I was growing um, patty pan squashes Mm. so um, the sunburst F1 variety um, and they were really really nice they I got so many squash squashes off of that like they were crazy they just suddenly all grew out of nowhere loads all at the same time um and then they kind of got a mildew over all the leaves so we had to pull them up but they were about done by that point um so we had those roasted and you know on the side of like just on the side of just normal dinners really with sausages and all sorts so they were really 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 nice 
Am I making this up? Can you like preserve them, like to make them like an ornament? I've heard of people doing yeah. this. Yeah. I just didn't know if it was actually true or not, or whether I'm just looking at fake ones thinking that someone's <laughs> growing them and preserve. But I'm pretty sure you can you, do that. I think you can. I think we recently actually had um, somebody on Have Your Say who who was playing some. Um, ah. I, I may have got this wrong. A bottle gourd. Okay. Um, so that, that could have been it. Um, so. But they were preserving theirs for the mantelpiece. Yeah, but, they're yeah. very in at the moment, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, the different, yeah. different um, squashes. In terms of small, cute members of the squash and pumpkin family, have you ever seen the Jack Belittle pumpkins? <gasps> oh, you may have told me about this a few moons <laughs> ago. So and, cute! Oh my goodness, they are they yeah. are very lovely. I do feel like they're only uh, like they're really cute, and I've grown them before, and they were really good. But I have. And this, again, this is on me, not on the actual vegetable. I have a lack of patience for things that require a lot of fiddling. And obviously Mm. they're quite small. So in order to get flesh from them, I'm entirely more likely to hack away at like a big old crown prince or something and be like right the flesh in that is feeding us for a couple of dinners but I do think there's something so charming about the little ones and being able to um serve them individually almost so you have Mm. like a whole little pumpkin to yourself oh I love that sweet (laughs) and wouldn't they make lovely little Halloween ornaments instead of having a big one you could have a big one with some little baby ones around yeah exactly a family family. yeah yeah oh Oh, yeah (laughs) although i am famously the person that said in the office once that um carving pumpkins is just a waste of pumpkin soup because i'm absolutely obsessed with pumpkins yeah (laughs) i would argue though that you can still make pumpkin soup afterwards i mean you could but when they're a little bit past their best and they're gonna be dried out and gnarly i'm not sure they'll make the best soup really no but yeah my mum made pumpkin soup actually this week and I had some it was absolutely delicious and I just yeah they're cracking when they're in season I yeah I fully appreciate pumpkins definitely yeah yeah my dad always grows quite a lot of um squashes and stuff and there's normally a nice little variety of like butternut squashes last year was amazingly productive for butternut squashes I think they were I mean they were keeping mum and dad and us in wow. <laughs> in squashes for quite some time. Um, but also Yuchiki Kiri, which are really nice. I'd love to Crown Prince, which I absolutely love. But I know we were all discussing the other day about the perils of having a knife sharp enough to... Oh, yes. ...actually cut them up. Yeah. Need the tools. Yeah, the right it, tools is, it is perilous. And I, I don't think I've got the skills for it. So I just... <laughs> Like a child, I just let my mum do it. Yeah. <laughs> but they are, aren't they? They put yeah. a real fight and they just, I yeah, think, yeah. oh, it only takes one wrong move and you know, trip to A&E for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it doesn't help when you're naturally, like I'm naturally quite a clumsy person. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So, yeah, that's always a little bit dangerous. But, you know, we do it for the delicious, the delicious pumpkin curries yeah. and mm, pumpkin curry. Mm. I've not oh, tried that, but it sounds very nice. It's mentioning th- curry. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weak any, spot. Any vegetable in any of our houses gets immediately curried. Yeah. One vegetable, and then I'm not sure if I'll grow it next year because I don't know if I'll have my garden fully sorted out at that point, but cauliflower is something I really want to explore yeah. further. Oh, yes. From a mainly a culinary perspective, but just because first of all years ago it was just given a bad rep because it was just bland yeah then it became the replacement for all carbs in the world ever Mm. which doesn't give it a good rep either and I think actually you know I've roasted it before with like um I think I had it with like turmeric garam masala and cumin Mm. bit of olive oil just roast it in the oven absolutely delicious i love a roasted like roasted i know they're different things but like roasted cauliflower and roasted broccoli yeah i could just eat a whole baking tray of roasted broccoli and i still need to try this because that sounds delicious but of course like most vegetables if you just boil them boil their soul out of them (laughs) they're probably not going to taste very much but if you know how to get the best from them this is it yeah and i want to make i want to perfect like a, a cauliflower soup as well 
I'm really Are you a cauliflower suits. cheese person? Yes. Oh, no. Not, well, but again, it's because I have this like negative association mm. with cauliflower in my head, which I want to break because I've done it with mushrooms. I'm going to do it with cauliflower. Yes, it will yes. be done. So I'm, I'm exploring ways in which I like to eat it the most. See, that's a controversial thing. What vegetables don't we like? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm not massively struck on aubergines. Mm. But is it a texture thing potentially but also because it might be that i've not had enough of them in my lifetime to really know that they're not really in a lot of things that i eat yeah so i think to me that it's kind of like oh i don't have that one <laughs> my mum used to make a mediterranean vegetable bake but she used to sort of breadcrumb the aubergine and then fry them see that sounds nice and that just took them to another level and it's yeah. you've got a bit of the crispiness with the gooey flesh and it just balanced it out so nicely mm. i don't eat them very often to be honest because they are a little bit strange looking inside and i think my partner's a little bit easily off put by those things there's not many vegetables i would say the only one i would say that i'm really like i'm not really worried if it's there or not is spinach oh mm. okay um i'd eat it mm. but i wouldn't sit there and go oh yeah i'd be sad if it wasn't in yeah. something yeah you know? yeah I d- but yeah. yeah hating hating's a strong word eh? there's yeah. anything that i particularly hate i don't, I don't think, think i hate anything no, i don't think there are really any vegetables i don't like no. i think there are ones that like i would never like swede for example mm. would never be my first port of call yeah but if someone served it up to me, I would happily eat it. Yeah, a sweet mash it. at Christmas time. Yeah. Get in my belly. Yeah. Mash <laughs> at Christmas time. I know we'll probably have to curb our Christmas chat for our the Dirt Christmas special. But um Are you a mash and roast at Christmas? Yeah. But my mum and dad are mash and roast all year round. Oh. Chaos. We'll yeah. delve into this further <laughs> yeah. in our in our festive episode. But interesting. That, yeah, that's revolutionary to me. And it's Swede mash. Well, no, she does Swede mash and regular mash and roast potatoes. It, I'm not kidding <laughs> when I say it is chaos. It is chaos. I love that. Yeah. Wow. But it takes a lot, it puts a lot of pressure on me when I have to cook them a roast because I would just choose one or the other. I wouldn't, yeah. well, I probably would be roast potatoes. That's not a <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to say, that's not a choice on no. a roast dinner. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, they would feel bereft if I just gave them one. Oh, I do love a good mash though. Like I don't often have sausage and mash, but whenever I have it, I'm always like, oh, why don't I eat this all the time? Like a really <laughs> buttery, lovely. I remember I made mash at my friend's house once and um, I'd gone around there for dinner and um, I was just like, helping her prep stuff. And she was like, yeah, okay to do the mash. Yeah, yeah, I'm finding the mash. And she's like, you've put like half the butter in the mash. And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and because <laughs> that's lovely buttery mash yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah i use a ricer as well we're getting really technical oh, yeah. now but a potato rice has changed my life oh. changed my mash game forever which brings me back around to the point that i've said on this podcast <laughs> until i am blue in the face i do not trust people that don't like potatoes oh yes they are untrustworthy <laughs> folks sorry um, have you ever met anyone that she doesn't like yeah. i've never met someone that doesn't like it yeah like, I've got like oh. people don't like bread or, or pasta and other carbs but and, and also like I can understand if you don't like a particular format of potato like if you don't love a mm. boiled potato yeah that's like, probably my least favourite like mm. I, I but if you just don't I mean there's so many forms of potato yeah speaking of actually again going this is controversial I don't like new potatoes no if I'm, I'm gonna have potatoes that, yeah. give them to me in any other format but not in the new just not in the new variety (laughs) i just find i i know that they've got a nice flavor i'm not saying that they haven't but it's just i want something a bit more than that Mm. you know that's fair enough yeah and um i used to as a teenager i used (laughs) my mom used to give me new potatoes and in protest i just mashed them with my fork to be like no i wanted (laughs) there we are that's sort of right mash that on the top (laughs) (laughs) i've solved my own problem there (laughs) yeah i mean i suppose the one good thing with the boiled potato is you can basically turn it into any other type of potato (laughs) with a little bit of time and time and creativity that is very true (laughs) (laughs) well uh laura i believe you've got some jobs on the plot for us i certainly do
Garlic is a key crop, especially for gardeners who also love cooking. So now is a great time to get your cloves planted. If you're in a mild part of the country, then they can go into their final spot. But if you think they'll need a bit of extra protection, do use a cloche. Continue clearing the plot, but why not try creating a dead hedge with the prunings, as suggested in episode 2 by Adrian from the RSPB. This makes a great environment for wildlife, especially over the challenging winter months. If you do dig your plot, then now's a great time to incorporate some well-rotted manure to give any empty soil a boost. You may need to stake any veg, such as Brussels sprouts, which can be affected by wind rock at this time of year. So make sure any leggy plants are offered this extra helping hand. Now is also the perfect time to hunker down with a cuppa and a seed catalogue and start planning your 2023 plot. In fact, this sounds so lovely, I might go and do this now. Have a great week in the garden and until next time, happy growing. Thank you for listening to this series of The Dirt. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free so you never miss an episode. We'd love it if you'd rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the word to your plot neighbours. Plus, we have an exclusive Grow Your Own magazine offer just for listeners of The Dirt. All you need to do is visit growfruitandveg.co.uk forward slash GYO52. That's GYO and the number 52 or call 0800 904 7000 and quote GYO52 to receive three issues for just £5. That's a saving of a whopping 76%. Every issue of Grow Your Own is packed with gardening advice, expert tips and tricks, and jobs to tick off your list. And each magazine comes with a wonderful bonus gift, such as selections of seeds. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And on a final exciting note, remember to get in touch if you or any of your gardening friends have some great stories of successes and fails on the plot. You could be a guest on the next series.